The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Sacred Life. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this sermon this morning is, is a kind of a different than um, a lot of the sermons that I preach. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, honestly, um, exegeting the passage and, and going verse by verse to this text. Um, it's, it's kind of topical this morning um, because I never get a chance to talk about what we're talking about. And we actually are, basically I'm talking about what we naturally do. All right. We always do it, but sometimes you don't catch on why we're doing what we're doing. And, and today I'm actually talking about why we do what we do at Sacred City. All right. And so what we're going to be ta- if I wanted to title this or a topic, what we're talking about is spiritual formation. And now that just, you might just like, well, that's not for me. Like, I don't ever think, I don't wake up and go, man, I really need to learn about spiritual formation this morning. But spiritual formation is an important topic because it's how we grow up as Christians. All right. It's how, it's what image Are we being formed into as a human being? Spiritual formation is basically our approach at Sacred City to how people change, okay? And how to change people and how to change us as individuals, all right? How to be formed. Last week, we learned that Christians are called to grow up. We all come into the faith as spiritual babies, but it's not okay to stay that way. We must mature, We must grow up. And Paul told us in Ephesians 4 that growing up means becoming more and more like Jesus. Humble. Growing in humility. Listen, not just Bible knowledge. Growing in humility. Growing in our patience. Growing in our gentleness. Growing in our love for God and our love for one another. This is what it means to be shaped into the image of Jesus. Okay? This is what it means. We're called to be formed into that image. Now, how do we do that? That's the question we're really asking and trying to answer today. In one sense, general sense, I kind of answered it last week. We live our lives as part of the church. We speak the truth and love to one another and use the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ. That's kind of general. What does that really mean for us as individuals? See, I want to build off of that this week and show you that growing up as a Christian, okay, is what discipleship is. Growing up and being formed into the image of Jesus is more than just belief-centered. More than just belief-centered. It takes more than just faith. Now, I know that's, I'm walking a tightrope. It takes more than just faith. Now here, to become a Christian, to enter into the family of God, to go from death to life, from hell to heaven, only takes faith. We put our trust in Christ. Christ's blood covers our sin. His sacrifice paid for us. We're justified once and forever in the sight of God. We're made new. We're new creations. We are in the family of God. We're saved Praise God for that faith alone. But that faith never remains alone. From that moment, we begin to grow. We're we're meant to grow. We're meant to enter this 
life of faith and grow into the image of Jesus and to be shaped into the image of Jesus. Now, I'm going to put this definition up of kind of what I'm building off of, and it's by a guy named uh, James K.A. Smith, popular writer, uh, Christian, kind of philosopher, theologian, um, and I want to try to get this through our heads this morning. I'm going to put it on the screen because it's pretty dense. Go ahead and put it up there. Being a disciple is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs in your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Pause. Many people teach that. If you think rightly, you'll behave rightly. No, I don't think so. Not necessarily. Keep going. Rather, it's a matter of being, this is identity language, of being the kind of person who loves rightly. Now that's packed right there. What what does it mean to love godly? For the Christian, rightly. For the Christian, it means to love God and neighbor. Now look, and this is what he says, and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. Now that is a dense, I I could preach a whole series on that. That's dense. It's it's in our liturgy if you want to read it later. Basically, what does that mean? (laughs) It means that for us to change, we need more than just knowledge. For us to grow, we need more than just doctrine and belief and faith in our head. Think of it like this. Let me get an example here. How many of you know that a good diet and exercise will help you live a longer and healthier life? Just go ahead and show of hands. How many actually know that? All right. Many of us. I think we all know that, right? It's common knowledge. But how many of us actually eat healthy and work out three to five times a day? Or week, I'm sorry. <laughs> three or five times a day. Three or five times per week, right? Now, why is that? Do you have a death wish? Are you a psycho? Are you longing to die soon? Get me off this planet. I want a cheeseburger. Is that your life? I don't think so. We all know it's true. But here's the reality. Something deeper than knowledge is driving us. We love fast food. We love processed sugar. A.K.A. Little Debbie's. Whitey's. We love sugary drinks. We love Netflix and video games too much to put down the controller and go for a run. We know this. Now listen, here's my, here's the premise kind of, if we want to, and this is just an example, okay? This is not the diet and exercise sermon, but it kind of might be. If we want to change, here's the premise. If we want to change what we eat, we must change what we love. It's deeper than knowledge. This is no new discovery. 1600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote in his confessions that this is what he said. He said, love is my weight. Love is my gravity. What's he saying there? St. Augustine was saying, I'm pulled by my loves. Okay. You know, we get gravity has a gravitational pull. You throw a ball in the air and the earth pulls it down, right? The gravitational pull pulls it down. The ball is pulled by its gravity. Okay. Augustine is saying, whatever we love is like gravity. It pulls us in that direction. That's why when I go by McDonald's, my love pulls me through the drive-thru, right? We feel this. When I'm walking by my Bible or I see my remote or I see my phone, my loves pull me towards my phone and sometimes away from my Bible. Or my love pulls me towards my Bible. What I love pulls me in that direction. It's my gravity. He goes on to say that our hearts are constantly pulled in different directions and therefore they're restless until they find their rest in God. Now, this is what he's saying. If you've ever take a glass of water and you pour oil in it, oil and water have different gravity, they have different weights, different densities, right? And so that oil and water is like this. 
And if, but if you leave it for a day, what happens? Those things become rightly ordered and the water sinks and the oil rises to the top. And now they're at rest. He's saying our hearts, when they're pulled by inordinate love, so wrong loves, we love something more than God, or we love something more than God and others, our hearts are like that oil and water. They're just moving like this, constantly restless, never satisfied, never have enough. But when we come to truly love God more than anything else in our life, our hearts become rightly ordered and they can become at peace and they can become still. See, sin, Augustine says, isn't just loving bad things, right? But sin is loving good things inordinately, out of order, right? So enjoying sugar is not a bad thing. When I love sugar more than I love living long life and being healthy, then that's a problem, right? Loving to be in relationship with people is not a bad thing. But if I love people more than I love God, then my heart is going to be out of order. My heart is going to be restless within me all the time. See, we have all, every human being on this planet has been made in the image of God and God is love. And therefore we're made to love. We're made to move and be pulled by our loves towards something that we think is ultimate whether it's God or whatever it is in our heart that we find as ultimate. And if it's not God, we're going to be pulled towards chaos and destruction. To be made in God's image means we are lovers. We're made to love and our lives are going to be shaped by whatever it is that we love. Okay. So here's my, here's what we're talking about. How do I get inside there and change what you love? How do we do that? How do we change what we love? If the reason we sin is because we love something more than we love God, how do we get in there and shape our hearts? Well, of course, it takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to come and give us a new heart, right? It takes that, but what else? Is there, I mean, is that it? Do we just, you know, is it just faith and we just hope and pray that God would do something in us? Well, this is interesting. Let's go to our text this morning. In, uh, Revelation chapter two, and I'm just going to really, honestly, I'm really just going to stick on verse four and five. All right. We're going to talk about that. Hear the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. This is, oh, by the way, just to throw this in. This is the resurrected Jesus. Okay. And if, if the only picture of Jesus is, you know, the meek and mild carpenter, you need to read the book of Revelation because this Jesus is, is a, kind of a stark contrast to that, all right? This is the resurrected Jesus, eyes like fire, okay? Tongue like a sword, coming to bring wrath on the enemies of God. This is, this is the, the intense Jesus here, okay? And this is what he says to this church. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus looks at a church. Remember what the church is. It's the body of believers. It's a group of people, right? Gathered together, made new by, his, by the blood of Jesus. Jesus looks at these believers, and what does he say? He says, I got a problem with you. Now that's intimidating, number one, right? Resurrected Jesus, eyes like fire. I got a problem with you. He's riding a bloody horse. This is concerning, if you know anything about it. He says, I have a problem with you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, the ESV study Bible got a little note in the bottom in the commentary there. And it just says this, these believers had veered away from their chief love of God and others. Pretty simple. They had lost their first love, the love of God and the love of others. But that's a pretty big problem, isn't it? For the church. Jesus says, you've lost your love for me and your brothers and sisters in Christ. You no longer care for the church. You no longer love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Listen, I think there's some people in this room that are in the same situation. You don't love God with all your heart. You barely even think about him. You don't love your neighbor. You don't love those in your missional community. You don't love the person maybe sitting next to you. That's your spouse, I'm sorry. You come to church, you might even go to a missional community gathering, but you aren't in love with God, and you don't love the people that God has placed around you. I hope you know that's a giant problem. God doesn't tell us to love him in some general way and, and, and say, like, you know, just love me kind of, and then just really love your friends and family. The people you like, love them. And we're like, I don't know, that's tough. It's really tough to do. See, that's simple. That takes no faith whatsoever to love the people that are like us or love the people that we like or to love the ones that we give birth to. Jesus says, love God more than anything else and love others like you love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Who is that? Your neighbor, that's whoever God sovereignly puts into your life. That's your coworkers. That's your neighbors, neighbor, neighbors. That's your MC family. That's your peep, the people at your gym, the people you come in contact with when you go for walks. God says, love me and love them. And Jesus looks at a church that has pushed the pause button on loving, on loving. Eh. And he says, you've got a major problem. Jesus, still gentle, still kind, still humble. And he says, if you don't remedy the problem, I'll snuff you out. I'll blow out your lampstand. I'll close the church. And to let you know, it actually happened. You go to Ephesus and... The, the church is gone. Not just the building, but the people. The faith is gone from this region of the world. Very small percentage of people are Christians. Jesus says you've got a problem and it needs to be rectified. These are some serious words. And I think he would look at us and say the same thing this morning. Have you walked away from your first love? Loving God and loving others. But here's the good news. He tells us how to fix it. And it's, I think it's very fascinating how Jesus tells them how to fix the situation. Jesus says this. You've lost your first love. Here's the three things, guys. Remember from where you have fallen... Okay, so listen, if you are in a place right now in your life where you can honestly say, God is not the most important thing to me in my life, but at one time he was. At one time the church was, the family of Christ was. Remember from where you have fallen. Think about what it was like when you were fascinated with God, when you were worshiping God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, whatever, to the, to the degree that that's humanly possible. Remember that. Remember where you've fallen. Go back to those quote-unquote good old days and think about it. And then what? Repent. What does that mean? It means you're going this direction, change directions, and head back. Remember from where you've fallen, turn around, repent, confess your sins, change directions, and head in the opposite way. And then look what he says. Fascinating to me. And do the works you did at first. Now, first of all, I just want to show us here how different Jesus' definition of love is than our culture's. In our modern concept of love, when love is lost, what do you do? You move on. Couples say it all the time. We just aren't in love anymore. We grew apart, so it's time for us just to move on. What are they saying? They're saying once love is lost or abandoned, it cannot be regained. Once you've lost that loving feeling, you can't find it again. 
You have to just start over with someone new. You got to find it somewhere else. This is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, remember, repent, and look, do the works you did at first. Jesus says, if you've lost your love, you can find it again. Love can be redeveloped. Love can be regained. Love can be restored. But here's the kicker. Jesus says, you have got to put in the work to do it. Now, this just blows my mind. I just, Jesus says, if you want your love to be restored, you have to remember, repent, and do the work. He doesn't say, remember, repent, and feel the feels. Do you see how radical this is compared to our culture's concept of love? He doesn't say pray and act for God to change your heart and give you the feeling. And then once you get the feeling, now act accordingly. I'm going to, when I feel like worshiping God, I'll worship God. When I feel like loving my spouse, I'll love my spouse. When I feel like loving my kids, I'll love my kids. When I feel like loving my neighbor, I'll love my neighbor. Here's a problem. I don't really feel like that very often. See, Jesus doesn't say feel the feels. He says, do the works. He doesn't say wait until your feelings change towards those people and then love them. Wait until you desire God and then worship him. He says, In other words, love isn't just actions that spring from feelings, but love is also actions done in faith that can actually change your feelings. Hear that. Actions done in faith that can change your heart, can change what you love, can change your feelings. There's something in the works that will reorder and restore your loves. So back to our diet and exercise example. If we want to change what we eat, we must change what we love. But if we want to change what we love, we must change what we do on a daily basis. This is backwards to us. We know our loves have to change, but you can actually change what you love by changing what you do on a daily basis. Our hearts, listen to this, our hearts are shaped by what we habitually do. Our habits have a way of forming us and shaping us, shaping what we love, shaping us into a certain type of person. Our habits do this. Now listen, this is what's interesting. If a doctor tells a man that if he doesn't change his diet and exercise, he's going to die. Like your heart is on the verge of exploding. You've got to cut the cholesterol. You've got to do whatever, whatever. You've got to diet and exercise. It's shocking how many men go home and they refuse to change anything. Now, why is that? Does the guy have a death wish? I don't think so. What's going on? Well, first off, his love for a longer life or a healthier life or more time with his kids or more time to worship God, his love for life has got to be stronger than his love for bad food, unhealthy food. But how do you change what you love? Right? We're pulled along by what we love. Has this gravitational pull on us? Now, here's the real question. What do you love? Now, this is what's interesting. I'm reading a book, and he, this guy talks about, you might not love what you think you love. 
And he talks about that. I think it's a, a real abstract, avant-garde movie where there's this room in this house. And if you go into this room, it will give you your heart's number one desire. The greatest desire of your life, this room will give you. So your chief love, this room will give you. And they're like, this is going to be amazing. I'm, you know, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to get a million dollars. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to find the love of my life. I'm going to walk. And then they started talking, but what if, what if you love is not really what you think you love? What if deep down you really want to rule the world? And you step into this room and you just become this tyrannical monster. What if you really want the worship of everyone? Everyone in the world to say how great you are. What would happen if you stepped into this room? What if we don't really want what we think we want? What if we don't really love what we think we love? See, if you ask any man in his right mind, what do you love more? Your life, your family, or fast food? They're going to say, my life and my family, through tears, talk to a doctor. Through tears. Somebody who struggles with drug addiction, same thing. I love my family more. And in the moment, the addiction pulls them. Right? I love my life. I love my family. An hour later, they're in the line at McDonald's. Why is it? Sometimes we don't even know what we love. Our loves can go under the radar. Our, our loves can fly under the surface, and we don't even know what we really love, what we really desire. But here, you know what? You might actually love sugar more than you love God. Paul, the apostle, said there are some whose God is their belly. That's what Paul said. They didn't have fast food back then. Paul said their God is their belly. What's their desires? They're driven by those, their fleshly carnal desires more than their spiritual desires to love God and love others. Fascinating to me. Scary at the same time. Because anybody, who do you love? I love God. Who's your chief love? Definitely God. That's what we think. But our real loves are going under the radar and they're pulling us and pushing us to other things. So here it is. Listen, if you want to know what you really love, look at your daily habits. And it might scare you to death. What we really love in life goes public on a day-to-day -day basis through our habits. Here's the big idea this morning. We always move toward our love. Human beings cannot help it. Gravitational pull towards whatever it is that we love. And our habits reveal to us what we love. So, boom, if I assess my life and I look at my life, I should be able to see what are my habits and do my habits display um, that I love God more than everything else and, and others or do my habits display that maybe I love myself? And if I look at that and I say, my habits display I'm in love with me. I love me some me. What should I do? Remember where I've fallen. Repent. I should feel conviction over that. I'm like the man who's slamming quarter pounders, but saying he loves his life and he's saying he loves his family. The doctor's report saying, you're going to die if you don't stop. But here's the twist. Our habits reveal what we love, but our habits also have the power to reshape and retool and redirect our loves. Now, that is profound. It's not for me. I can say that, okay? That is profound. Your habits have a way of reaching inside of your heart and retooling it and reshaping it. So if I want to change what I love, I've got to change some habits, some rhythms. 
So the man who must change his love for sweets and fast food, what does he have to do? He has to change his daily habits. He probably has to get an accountability partner. He has to cut out the sweets and the fast food. He has to be more thoughtful at the grocery store and probably do the little thing. You just stay to the outside. Everything living is on the outside. Everything created is in the middle. He has to plan his meals better. He has to eat things that he doesn't want to eat. But this is, this is what's surprising. And I'm a testament to this. After a few weeks or months or years, maybe possibly decades of doing that, eating what he doesn't like to eat, staying away from what he really wants, all of a sudden he wakes up one day and realizes he loves differently. He loves real food. He actually enjoys exercising. He, I feel great. He's traveling. He's got to make time to get out there and work out. What he dreaded, now he loves. What happened? His habits reached in and changed what he loves. Who would have thought? I love sweet potatoes. Your habits have a way of shaping what you love and what you desire. Your habits. What happened here? See, the daily rhythms. Now, a lot had to change. This is why it's so hard for a person to change their diet and exercise because literally everything in your life has to change. The way you think about food has to change. The way you approach food, the way you plan for your day, right? You get 1130, you didn't plan, you're starving. You got one option. It ain't good. Fast food, probably. Everything had to change. But once he changed kind of the rhythms of his life, his everyday habits, after a, a season of time of doing that differently, he found he's no longer the same person. And listen, I am this guy, okay? In a sense. I grew up. I, little Debbie was my food group, okay? I loved it. My, old, my younger brother would come in, make himself a sandwich, and I'd go grab three oatmeal cream pies. I'm good. And walk out. And through my wife and through just getting, getting healthier, you know, we started eating real food and we started doing these things. And I started, I still love oatmeal cream pie. I'll crush a Whitey's too, but rare, very rarely. And, and I don't desire it. Now I feel like it makes me sick, right? Like something in me has actually changed by it. My habits have changed my heart. Same with this example here. His habits formed him into a different type of person who actually loved differently. Now listen, what Jesus saying in, in Revelation 2 is the same thing. Please hear this. Your habits affect your heart. Not just when it comes to diet and exercise. Listen, let me flip the script a little bit. Your habits, I'm going to use a different word. Your habits are your daily liturgies. The word liturgy literally means the work of the people, right? The way that we do our gathering this morning, that's a liturgy. It's a set liturgy, same week in and week out. It's meant to shape us. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. Your daily habits are daily liturgies meant to shape you into a certain type of person. The question is, what is your shape? What are you being shaped into? What is your liturgy look like? Every liturgy, every habit is meant to shape us in a certain type of person, to love something, to be pulled by our loves towards some direction. Now, this might surprise you. You could be a Christian. You could say, I love God, but your daily liturgy could be shaping you to love something else more than love God. I think... The liturgy of our day, the predominant liturgy of our day is that of individualism and consumerism. See, the, God says you were created to love him. 
You were made in his image to image him, to be his reflectors to the world, to find his glory appealing and to worship him and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever and to have this intimate relationship with him. And you're created to live in an intimate relationship with a community of people, his church, growing in your faith on a daily basis, being shaped more into the image of Jesus. See, this is what life is all about. The gospel shaking us, community shaping us, being on the mission of God, all of these things, gospel, community, and mission, shapes us more into the image of Jesus on a daily basis. That's the liturgy that our lives should follow. But in our culture, our, our first, in our culture, our first love isn't God or others all about us, individualism. And in this individualistic and consumeristic worldview, here's the goal. What are you, what is it trying to shape you into? The goal is to outwork and out earn and out vacation and out party and outlive your friends on Facebook. Think about this. We filter all of our, th- all of our decisions through this. This is our idea of the good life. This is a, we, what we love down deep sometimes, under the surface. How often do you think about, when you make decisions, do you think through these, will this decision get me more money? Will I have more freedom and free time? Will I be able to buy more stuff? Will I be less entangled more freedom. I don't, don't want anything holding me back. Will I look successful if I do this? Do you, you realize like Facebook, I'm not criticizing it completely. I think we have to be careful. Do you realize it's a business? They make money off of the amount of time you spend on it. Why is it so addicting? They make money the more time you spend on it. He's not just some generous guy. I just want to connect the world. I just really want to just be benevolent and just connect the world and we can develop relationships. He's a billionaire looking at becoming a trillionaire. See this view. Now listen, this view, this love, this view of kind of what the good life is, flies in the face of the entire New Testament and places us, individuals, at the center of the universe. Now listen, if you are the center of the universe, do you realize how small your universe is? Do you realize it? If everyone in your life is orbiting around you, you have a very small universe. The reality of the biblical vision of the good life is God is at the center of things and everything revolves around him. The idea, the liturgy of individualism and consumerism, here's the basic premise. Collect a bunch of stuff and then die. Is this what you love? Is this the love that's going under the surface and it's really driving all of your decisions and your daily liturgy is shaped by this? Collect more stuff and die. If I collect more stuff, I'll be happy. If I look more successful, I'll be happy. See, look at your daily habits. What's your daily liturgy look like? Is your... Daily liturgy shaped by the biblical idea of a good life, loving God and loving others, or is it shaped by our cultures? Now, this is interesting because if, if let's just say the love of money, if the love of money, which is a strong love, it's a, it's a dominant love, it pulls us towards it, right? If the love of money is your first love, it will actually pull you downward and away from God and away from people. That's the gravitational pull of money. Why, why, why do I say, how, how does money, if your love of money, how does it pull you downward away from God and away from people? Well, first off, it's your money. <laughs> right? It's your money. And so like the church, you're kind of like, ooh, I don't know, the church might ask me for money. That preacher, preacher, all he wants to talk about is my money. And then how do you feel towards people? 
How do you feel towards needy people? They just want my money. They need to work harder. They need to make it for themselves. It actually distances you from people because you think they, they're coming to take from you. They're taking something that's yours. You get a boatload of money and money actually pulls you away from God and away from others. There's a gravitational pull when money is your first love. But if God, now listen to this, not saying money is evil. If God is your first love and you get a boatload of money, the way you use money will actually pull you upward toward God and people. Money, more money will actually make you more generous and loving. You got more money and now you give more money. You're more generous. You see people, needy people in your life and you're actually looking forward to giving to them. You're looking forward to giving back to God. See? This is the way money, the way our daily habits and our, our loves drive what we do and our daily habits reveal what we love. And this is the reality. Discipleship is meant to reorder what we love through our habits. You love God or you love money and you love God. Discipleship is meant to, through our habits, reorder our love and put God on top. It's not a fun process. (laughs) This is spiritual formation through our body. How does a greedy person become a generous person who loves God? There's only one way. He doesn't sit around and wait and pray to God, just make me less greedy. By the way, no greedy person has ever prayed that, I don't think, on the planet. What does he do? The only way is to give generously. That's the only way. A daily habit reforms their love. It's the only way. The things we do in our daily and weekly habits have a way of shaping us into a certain type of people. Now, what does this mean for us? I'm closing here too, but I'm, well, maybe. I said that and then I looked at the clock and I said, no, I ain't closing. This is what it means. And this is kind of important. It means you can be a Christian and go to church but still be being shaped in a very unchristian way by your daily liturgy, your daily habits. And now listen, the church body of believers, the community of people here, God's people is meant hear this to cut against the grain and to fight against the cultural current and to reform you to love God first and love neighbors like you love yourself. The church is meant to reorient your love, to fight against the cultural current and shape you in a different way. The church is meant to form you into the image of Jesus, not into the image of our culture. The church, therefore, is not individualistic and consumeristic. Now, this is interesting. What is consumerism? You know, I consume, therefore I am. I constantly need more things, newer things, better things, and then I just dispose of the things that still work, but I'm not impressed with them anymore. Okay? Now, it's interesting. Consumerism has shaped our soul in America. Um, The way we treat the new iPhone, and then it becomes the old iPhone, we just get rid of it. Listen, is the way we're beginning to treat human beings. Once they're no longer useful, get rid of them, hide them, tuck them away, forget about them. The church can actually be affected by consumers. And listen to this, this is one way. Um, This marketing company, okay, uh, approached a church and said, hey, um, we want to do market research for you. We want to help you shape your church in such a way that all the people in the neighborhoods come to your church and fill your church. Now, in America, we think this is great. Market research, reaching a 
you know, target demographic. This is going to be great. They said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to send out flyers to all the neighborhoods. This is a true story. Send out all the flyers to all the neighborhood, and we're going to ask them, what is, what are the top three things that you want from a church? And then we're going to give you the results, and all the church has to do is shape its liturgy around what the, what the crowd wants, and then these people are going to flock in. Here's the number one thing that the people wanted from a church. We want a church that doesn't demand anything from us at all. Oh, well, that's easy. I'll do that then. Let me build a church that doesn't ask anything from anyone. They just come in, hear a nice word, and then leave, and they don't have to do anything. There's no accountability. They never, they never feel convicted. They never are called to repent. They never are told to go to that person and say you're sorry and confess your sins. They're never told, stop doing that. They're never told, you need to give and you need to love and you need to lay your life. Oh, all we have to do is borrow these consumeristic principles and just not require anything from anyone ever again. How easy it is to build a business like that and how impossible it is to build a church like that. Now, what's interesting is that the church all across our nation is using consumeristic principles to draw people into the church. That's like Weight Watchers using Twinkies to lure people into Weight Watchers. Now, what the, what's the hope? The hope for the church is to bait and switch, right? Twinkie, 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 Jesus! Right? But 95% of the people are like, where's the Twinkie? I came for the Twinkie. Right? Now, how does this work? They, we market. You know what? Oh, we have the world's greatest kids ministry. We got slides and buzzers and lasers and smoke. Your kids are going to love it. And what? So what's it doing? If you worship your kids, if your kids are the most important thing in your life, come to our church. You can serve that idol here. You can worship your idol of family at this church. We'll never call you out on it. Mm. They're actually forming people into greater consumers. You'll never hear a song you won't like. Everything will be in the key you like. Everything will be at the tempo you like. You'll be able to pronounce every word clearly at our church. That's not true here. We killed that one when we throw in Ebenezer every time. Give them an Ebenezer this week, Joel. They can't handle it. See, the church is trying to hijack consumerism, but you can't hijack consumerism. If you use it, you become it. The church, hear me, the church is meant to go against the grain of culture, guys. And so when you step into Sacred City, I want you, it to feel a little awkward and to feel a little weird and to feel a little old. I want it. The church needs to demand things from you. You shouldn't be happy every week. You should get convicted. You should repent of your sin. You should feel like a fool sometimes. You should feel like a sinner sometimes because you are. And you should hear that there's grace in the gospel. And that we're trying to form you into a different type of person who loves God and loves others. And the culture is constantly pulling you back and saying, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. And the church has got to cut against the grain. That's why we preach through books of the Bible most of the time. I know what you want me to preach on, right? We, we get it. Marriage, sex, singleness, the end times. That's all you want to know. Let's just go in circles, right? Draw the crowd. You really want to bring them, do all of them in one sermon. <laughs> we need to be shaped in a different way because our loves are disordered. What we want is disordered. So, Sacred City 
is different by design. We are shaped. Sacred city is shaped to shape your love. We want to change your heart by changing what you love. And we're trying to shape you into a different type of person. Now in the brother Karamazov, I can never say Dostoevsky's name very well. He says this thing. He says this line. He says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful things thing compared to love in dreams. What does that mean? It means love is difficult. Love is painful. Love takes hard work. Love basically shows up every day with its work clothes on. That's what love is. It's not floating around a cloud. It's not easy. It's not just, you know, butterflies every day. And so listen, I'm going to, Sacred City, we've shaped our church to shape your love. And it's a dreadful thing sometimes. (laughs) It's a difficult thing sometimes. It's not pleasant a lot of times. Let me explain it. Let me just start with a big piece since we're here. (laughs) Our liturgy on Sunday morning. Okay. And by the way, if you don't get here on time, you miss a good piece of it. And it's meant to shape you. Here, can I tell you what's been going on all week long? Let me tell you the reality. All week long, your loves have been disordered. And you've been pursuing career or you've been pursuing your family or you've been pursuing money and you, you've put God in the back burner and you've barely thought about him. Even the best of us, even, right? And that's what's happened. And so you kind of come dragging in on a Sunday morning and you're thinking about your party and you're thinking about this and you're thinking about that and you're kind of thinking, I hope Justin doesn't go long today, right? And what's the first thing that we do? We sing a song that's meant to draw our eyes off of ourselves and up to God. It's a song that's about the attributes of God every week. It's about who God is and what he's done. And then what do we hear? We hear, I give a welcome and then we hear a call to worship. We know what this call to worship does? Radically reshapes us. This is what our, our, we think we're coming here to get God's attention. God was here before you got here. God never leaves and God is trying to get your attention. So the first thing we hear is in our liturgy is a call to worship from the Psalms saying this is who God is and he wants you to worship him. And that's the only way you're going to find peace and happiness in your life is if you focus on him. It's not us coming here trying to get God's attention. God's trying to get our attention. So immediately in our liturgy, our eyes are drawn off of ourselves and drawn up to God. And then what? Here's what should happen. We see the goodness of God. We see the greatness of God. We see the grandeur of God. And then we remember what we've done all week long. I've treated God like he's an annoying neighbor all week long. Get off my back. I'm trying to pursue my first love, career advancement. And I realized that in this moment. And then what do I need? Every single person, Christian or unchristian, needs to confess their sins and repent. And so we help you do that. We put it on the screen with words that you know are better than yours. Right? Because they've been thought about. They're not in the moment. Like I had one repentance when I was a kid. Father, please forgive me for everything I did this, this day. All of it. I'm not really sure what I did, but all of it, please right? General repentance. But we're confessing our sins. And then what do we hear? Then what do we hear? What happens? See, in the culture, when you confess your sin, people pull away from you. In our culture, when you admit weakness, people run. Point. Ugh. But what do you hear? In the gospel, when you confess your sin, God gives grace. You're forgiven. You're loved. I knew you were going to do it before I saved you. I love you. I've forgiven you. I give you grace. And we're Thank you, Father, for forgiving a sinner like me. And then we lift our eyes upward again. We sing a couple more songs. Then we profess our faith together. And then we hear the reading of God's word. We have to do announcements. Then we hear the reading of God's word. And that's the focus, right? Public reading of scripture, scripture tells us to do. And so we read God's word and our minds go to God's word. And then you hear an hour long sermon about it. Right? Why? Slow down. 
Meditate on the word. Think about it in more than 23 minutes of a Netflix episode. So, meditate, think, s- slow yourself down. Meditate on the word of God. Ask God to change your heart. And then hopefully we're brought to repentance again through the preached word. And then what do we do? Then we come down and receive the supper, the meal of grace, the body of Christ. And we've done nothing to prepare it. And I, or an elder, or one of the men serving, put the body of Christ, and it's a free gift to sinners. And we eat, and we drink, or we dip. We take it into ourselves. And then we, we pray, and then we sing another song. We thank God for what he's done in our heart this day. And then the liturgy reader gives us a benediction. It says, if this is true, live like it this week. Go out as missionaries this week. See, that's the liturgy. It's anti-consumeristic. It's saying, I know you want fast and happy clappy, and I know you want quick, and, but that's not how God changes people. We're doing it in the shape of the gospel. Our music, the songs that we choose. Why don't we sing K-Love? Why don't we have Hillsong United all the time? Why don't we? Mainly, I'll just cut it down. Mainly, it's the use of pronouns. Okay? Our modern worship is almost always I, me, I, me, I, me, I, me. I lift my hands in worship. I, I, I. We don't need more I. We don't need more me. We need more God. We need to hear what he's done for us. See, our song selection even is meant to shape us into a different type of person to think more about God and less about ourself. Now, this isn't the only liturgy though. Liturgy is what you do every day. So what do we do? The main thrust of our church is meant to live in missional community. What is missional community? Can I just say it like this? Missional community is anti-consumer. <laughs> it's anti-consumer. It's not about taking and receiving. It's about giving and being in a family. Do you realize, like we talk about this generosity thing, and this is big for us. If you, when you step into a missional community, you now begin to bring meals to bring food every week. So that means every week, you've got to plan your week to think about other people. What should I bring? Do they have allergies? Can I bring this? Can I bring that? What should I bring to serve my missional community? It's just the act of being in a missional community is reforming you in some way to make you more generous of a person, to think less of yourself. When a new person walks in, think less of yourself. Go meet them, go greet them, go talk to them, go find out about them. You, like consumeristic churches. Oh no, there's a greeter that does that. No, no, no. Missional churches. You are that greeter. You are that person. Missional community is the same way. Every, what's a missional? And what else? Last week we talked about it. Every member of church of a church is in the ministry. You are responsible can, I, can we just sit on that? Members of Sacred City, people are in a missional community. You are responsible and held accountable to God to love those in your missional community on a weekly basis. When God says love them, he means them in your missional community. He means your neighbors. He me- that's not just people we like. Love them, serve them, carry their burdens. It's tough. Reminded again by, what if I don't feel the feels? C.S. Lewis, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. What's he saying? Your habits shape your heart. Your daily liturgies, your weekly liturgies, your monthly liturgies shape what you love. Why do we do membership at Sacred City? It's anti-consumerism. You're saying, these are my people. 
I am not going to shop around. <gasps> I go to that church because the music. I go to this other church because of the preaching. I go to this other church because of the coffee. When membership says, this is my people. I'm not looking around. Right? It's getting married to the, to the perpetual couples who are, you know, like, eh, I like her, but there could still be a better option. I'm just keeping my options open just in case the perfect one comes walking in. We treat the church the same way. Membership slays consumerism and individualism. Now listen, what am I saying? Basically, I'm saying this. Our entire church is relationally driven and not program driven because I think that's the way the church is meant to be. Human beings were made in the image of a personal and relatable God and we learn and we grow in relation with others. Right? And so how do you grow and how do you change? By being in intimate relationships with other people. So listen to me. If you want to be formed into the image of Jesus, you have to be walking in relationship with Jesus and in relationship with his church, not just on a Sunday morning. On a daily, weekly basis. This is how you learn to love things that you don't love right now. This is how the man learns to love. Uh, don't say that. I can't say that. Nobody loves kale. But he learns to love sweet potatoes. Let's say that, right? This is how. Daily habits. Daily rhythms. We say it like this. These are the habits of the sacred life. Do we see, do you see the three circles up there in that Venn diagram? One is the Sunday morning gathering. One is the city that's where we do that's where we do life right that's where we get coffee that's where we recreate that's where we go to the gym that's where we work that's the majority of our life and then we see our home and these are the three contexts that it takes to have a sacred life this is where we live our life right there the sunday gathering and the city and in our homes the home is also our missional community that's where we gather and so i'm calling us listen if you want to be a different type of person, if you want to have your loves ordered rightly to love God and love others, there's only one way to do it. Live as a part of God's church in missional community, in community, on mission with us. That's how we do it. Guys, we don't grow through podcasts. Can't do it sitting at home. You don't even grow through reading. I mean, we, we, we mature a little bit, but like I, you can read a book on patience all you want. It doesn't make you any more patient. How do you learn patience? By having kids. That's how, for the most part, right? by being in relationship, by having to be patient when I want to lash out, by being in intimate community. That's how you learn these things, right? Confessing, repenting walking together, living with these new rhythms and these new habits. So some of you, the time has come for you, your liturgies to change. The time has come for your habits to change. Join a missional community. Step in, become a member. August, I think we're doing membership. You don't feel the love? Act like you do. It'll change your heart. Do it in faith. Actions done in faith. Reach back and change our love. Man, I want to preach for another hour. These are the habits of the sacred life. These habits and rhythms shape our hearts to love God and others. They point our hearts in that direction. And we have, lastly, we have this thing called fight clubs. And basically they usually decipher kind of out of missional communities and it's three or four guys or three or four girls and they meet together and that's the most intimate uh, community that we have where they read books of the Bible together, they study together, they sh share their struggles and they share their sins together. They bear each other's burdens. Like we're, listen, sacred city is structured to shape your love and I get it. We're swimming. We're swimming upstream. We're going against the current. Everything else in our life is saying easier, faster, more you focused, don't want anything required of you. 
and we're swimming against it and saying that's not the good life. The good life is loving God and laying down your life for others. That's the good life. Let me pray. Father, I don't know if my words were adequate this morning, but I trust your spirit and I trust your word. And Father, I, I look at my own heart and I see that so often I stray from my first love, loving you and loving others, loving your church. And I pray that you would reshape my love, reshape my heart, and that you would reshape the hearts of those who are repentant this morning, that we want to be known on our deathbed as lovers of God and lovers of others, not possessors of many things. Father, would you retool us? Would you reshape us? Would you give us the strength to reorder our daily habits and trust your work? As I look back on my own life from five years ago, I see that I'm a different man today than I was five years ago. And I don't remember when it changed. I don't remember when it happened. It's the daily small doses of your grace and the liturgies that shape us into more repentant, more penitent, more gracious, more kind, more gentle, more loving people. And I pray that you would continue to do that for your glory and our joy and happiness. And as we come to the table this morning, Let us turn from our sin. Let's be reminded that Christ died for sinners. And he looks sinners in the face and he says, this is my body. I let it be broken for you. I let it be torn open for you. I let it be crucified for you. And this is my blood that was spilt to cover all of your sins, to make you right before God, to bring you to God. And we can eat and drink with joy this morning. Father, I thank you for this. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your liturgy. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.